0: This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Let's open to Proverbs chapter 5 together this morning. So we get into the preaching of God's Word. And let me just start by telling you a little bit about my eyes. My eyes are really light sensitive. I wear sunglasses Every single day. The darker the lenses, the better. It will be raining outside, and I need sunglasses to drive. And and I don't know the exact reason, but I think it's probably a combination of a few things for me. Uh, First, the coloring of my eyes is, is fairly light. I don't know if this is true or not, but I've been told that when you have lighter colored eyes... It's, it, light is a little bit more sensitive to them You don't have some sort of built-in protection uh, Another thing is, is I wear contact lenses And I think this one's just a vicious cycle Because I've been told that contact lenses Make your eyes more sensitive to light But I need the corrective lenses And my eyes are already really light-sensitive, and I need to wear sunglasses, so it just kind of goes round and round. I need the corrective lenses to wear my sunglasses, and so that's part of it. And and the last thing, there's one other thing. I don't know if this plays into it at all, but I I think it might. And this was just pure stupidity on my part, and maybe I can lay a little bit of blame at my parents' feet for this as well. Uh, When I was 12 or 13 years old, uh, we took a spring break trip to Cancun. And I don't remember if it was, if it was like I, I forgot to bring sunglasses or I was just a kid, so I didn't really know any better. But, but I don't think my parents realized that I was doing this. But here we were on the beach all day, first day of this trip. And the sun is intense, you know, d- down there kind of near to the equator. It's beating down on us. It's reflecting off the water. It's reflecting off that white sand. And so I'm out there. I remember squinting. All day long, but no sunglasses. And I, and I sunburn my eyes. You can do this. This is a real medical thing. You can sunburn your eyes. And so we are there for like six, seven days. The very first day, my eyes are just, it feels like somebody is stabbing them with needles. And I have to sort of endure that the rest of the trip. And I think maybe, I still think maybe my eyes are a little bit messed up from that. They never quite fully healed To where they were. Uh, Do you remember a few years ago, there was the remember the solar eclipse? And every news station, every media outlet is running story after story about how you're not supposed to look directly at the sun during the solar eclipse. To which first, is there like an epidemic of people just staring at the sun in the first place that we need a lot of public education about this? Remember, people were buying those, like, cardboard, they looked like the old movie theater, 3D glasses, so they could you could put them on your eyes and stare at the sun for, you know, a couple of minutes. It's during the eclipse, and, and they had doctors on television saying, you know, don't do this, you'll do permanent eye damage. And, and, then, and I don't know, did, I mean, are people walking into the ophthalmologist, you know, kind of after that going, I don't know. I was just staring at the sun. And, you know, other than the excruciating pain and the searing blindness I was feeling, did I, did I do some damage to this? But doctors were warning you could do lifelong damage if your, son, if your eyes are exposed to too much sun. Today, we're going to be warned about something very different that still has to do with what you see with your eyes and what you do with your body that can have a similar lifelong consequence for you from this ancient book of Proverbs. And this is really the perfect place to hear from Because Proverbs shines light, metaphor intended, into this timeless lure and it brings wisdom to bear that has stood the test of time. So this is an enticement that if you go down to it, even if you look at it too long like the sun, it's not just our retinas though or our our corneas that will be damaged, but our very souls will be consumed and dried up by it. It actually does nothing short of taking every good thing that God wants to do in us, and every good gift that he intends to give us, and it puts it in the balance. And so be warned, church, that if we give into this temptation, it will destroy you won't just hurt your eyes. won't just burn a little bit. It's not hyperbole. It's a very simple truth. So I haven't been reading whole chapters as I've been preaching through Proverbs. I've been doing a little bit of work here, a little bit of work there, and going kind of verse by verse, a little bit of section by section. What I want to do this morning is change that up a little bit, and I want to read all of Proverbs 5. And then we'll go back and we'll work through it. So join me in Proverbs 5. you brought your own Bible, find it in there. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can use the hardback black one in the pew in front of you. If you don't have a good Bible that you like reading at home, take that one home. It's, it's a gift to you. And let's read, follow along, please, in Proverbs chapter 5. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. That you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give honor your honor to others and your years to the merciless lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors and I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for a lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he's led astray. The book of Proverbs is about what is much more often simple than we may realize. The choice between living wisely and living as a fool. Church, wisdom is rarely some great secret, elusive to us, and difficult to understand. It is almost always simple, plain, and obvious. And here, the father who is imparting wisdom to the son says, Son, my pleas for wisdom won't do much good if we don't talk about one of your biggest temptations that's the temptation to lust and sexual impurity. And son, if you have any hope of living wisely, this doesn't just have to be among the things you are understanding of. It almost has to start here. And the way to live wisely in the face of sexual temptation, which is common to us all, is this. If you take anything out of here this morning, may it be this. This is the key. You have to love what God has given you and you have to refuse to long for what he hasn't. You have to love what God has given you and by his strength and power, you have to refuse to long for what he hasn't. That's the key to any happiness in God. It's really the key to any satisfaction in life. If you want to live... In the grace of God, follow something like Psalm 34, 7. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So the way to do this is just to take every bit of energy, every bit of passion, every bit of focus, and love what God has placed before you, and then with the help of the Holy Spirit, give less and less attention to what he's not given you. You know the secret to the happy life? Christians know this. Christians learn to delight themselves in the Lord, not to look over the Lord's shoulder and wonder if there's some better pleasure in the room that they might go and engage and talk to. Christians look the Lord in the eye and they delight themselves in being with Him, not looking around for something else. That's the secret to happiness in life. It's not money. It's not sex, it's not fame, it's not power. It's not somebody else, it's the Lord. And this is actually the way the Lord works in, in, in all ways. He doesn't ask us to take our, our hopes and passions and, and what would delight us otherwise and then you know, kind of stuff them down or, or lock them up or repress them. This is such a common misconception about the Christian life. So many non-Christians believe that to become a Christian is then to take everything that you want and everything that you would enjoy in life and trade them in for other things that you're just going to kind of settle for, even that you might find kind of boring. But if you think that you you don't understand the Christian life at all, you don't know anything about it, when God awakens you to new life by grit. By grace, He shows you what real life is. He shows you what true joy and true passion is. And the irony is, is that what it means to be truly happy, what it means to delight yourself, becomes, and you're shown that it was less and less about what you thought you wanted before, and more and more, of the things of God. And and so it's actually the opposite of living for the things in the world. That, that God shows you that what you thought you wanted actually bound you up. What you thought would bring you freedom and joy will actually kill you, will actually maim you, will actually make you less of a person, not more of one. That's the lie with virtually everything the world has to offer is it promises, it says, it tries to convince you that it will make you more human, that it will make you a better version of yourself, that it will satisfy you in a deeper way, but actually it will bind you, it will make you less human, it will make you less authentic and real. You will like yourself less, you will like your life less, you'll like the world less. Because all it will do is teach you to long for something that you were never meant to long for in the first place. And then God comes in and he redirects you toward himself. And he says, I'm I'm actually going to teach you how to really live. I'm going to teach you what it means to be human. I'm going to teach you what it means to have true desire met. I'm going to show you that I'm the only one who can do it. It's only going to happen in me. And in Proverbs 5 This truth, which is universal to human experience, universal to everything about God, is applied to lust and sex and marriage. So the father says to the son, Let's have a real talk. Let's have a real talk. There are things you need to know. This is how the chapter sets up. First, the father says, You will be tempted. That will happen. Don't be surprised by the temptation. Tells the son a little bit about what it can look like. Second, he's going to say, here's how you battle. And it is a battle. In the midst of sexual temptation. You can run. You run from what God warns you against. And you run toward what God has given you. And then the third thing the father tells the son is this isn't a drill. And because it's not a drill, inaction isn't an option. You will either be led to ruin by temptation or you will know more of life by turning to God. But there won't be an option to just sit in the middle. So that's how we're going to move through this. First, the temptation is introduced and the lines are drawn. Second, the instruction for how to fight or what it's like to just give in will be explained. And third, the Father will ask, what do you intend to do? It's not dramatic to say that the final question is, are you going to choose life or are you going to choose death? That's, that's, that's what we're working with this morning. Will you choose life or will you choose death? Uh, and, and the last thing I, I want to say before we walk through this is, is there are many women in here. And you might be wondering, especially after reading that, how this applies to you. Uh, one, I would just say it like this. First, I can't think of a single thing I'm going to say this morning that we couldn't just reverse the gender uh, toward and it, and it wouldn't still be true for you. And two... I'm not going to apologize in any way for this. I'm going to often speak directly to the men in here this morning for two reasons. Number one, it's because this is a deeper, and some of these things are a deeper temptation for men. And secondly, that's what the Bible does. We read Proverbs 5, and most of this was addressed to men, so I'm a Bible preacher. I'm going to preach Proverbs 5, and much of that is directly addressed to men. So I think all of these things, you can flip them around, and they can equally apply to women, but if you think, man, he, he's preaching a lot to the men, yeah, I'm preaching a lot to the men, because Proverbs 5 warns the men. So look again at these first few verses as we get in this first section, the, the introduction. We ask the question, what is the temptation? Verse 3, the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But something isn't right about that because in verse four, whatever she said has turned from sweetness to bitterness, and what was once smooth is now sharp. Honey sweet and oil smooth, and they should stay that way. But here the words that the son is being warned about have a bitter aftertaste, and they cut the inside of his mouth. So dogs do this sometimes. They lick a can. If you, if you leave a, a metal can on the ground or there's, there's some, something, they get a hold of something metal and they think it tastes interesting, dogs will actually chew up metal going after the taste and what they won't realize they're doing is cutting up the inside of their mouth. And then for weeks afterward, even their normal, regular nourishing food will be difficult to ingest because their whole mouth has been cut up. Whatever they thought they tasted couldn't have been worth the bloody mouth and the pain that came afterward. And it's not here just, just your mouth or your stomach that are ruined by the seductive woman. Because she doesn't have life on her mind. Look at, look at verse five. Her feet walk down to death. Verse six gives the impression that, th- that this woman might not even have much of a plan all she's trying to get you to do is wander she doesn't love you she will use lies to manipulate you because her goal is not to lead you to life or to truth it's first to confuse you second to bound you bind you and third to kill you that's the temptation Now look at the instruction that's given. First few verses of what the father says next. How do we fight the temptation? First, uh, look at the specific language of verse 7. There are words from the mouth of the temptress. that taste like honey, but turn bitter. And now the father says, that's not whose mouth you should listen to. Listen to my mouth. These are the words of wisdom. Verse 8, keep far from her. Don't go near her door. This is where every instruction regarding sexual temptation has to start. Stay far away. You can't go near to sexual temptation and plan on avoiding it. If that's your plan, you are a fool. It will be like trying to walk on the side of a cliff with loose gravel, thinking there's enough of a foothold here, and you'll slide right down the hill. And the trouble is this is becoming more and more challenging. You know, it it used to be, and many of us remember a time where it was just, you know, keep co-workers of the opposite sex at a distance, keep those relationships professional, don't go to certain stores Don't go to a certain section of a video store. Now it's everywhere. It's emails and and, and text messages. Do you know there are websites that contain just on a one website more pornography than existed in all the world up until just twenty years ago? Brothers, I'm begging you. Don't look at porn. Don't look at porn. It will ruin your life. It will lie to you, and the devil will lie to you, and it will tell you that you can just look a little bit, or if it's not real nudity, it's not actually pornography, that if it's just a little, it's not a big deal, that you've got it under control. Those are all lies. Here's what's true. If you believe that you can dabble in it, but keep a lid on it, that you can have a little bit, it's not going to hurt anybody. It's not you who's in control. It's the pornography. It's like nuclear radiation. There's no safe level that the body can absorb and not be affected. These next verses say this. When you look at it, when you fantasize about her or him, when you go down that road, you give your honor and your years and your life to someone else, and they won't treat you well for it. They don't have mercy in, in their mind. So look at these next few verses. Strangers take your strength. Somebody else takes what you've worked for. And at the end of your life, you'll realize without a shred of doubt that it wasn't worth it. It was never worth it. Here's how it happens. I've seen this and so have you. A marriage is destroyed. A family is broken apart. You've watched a man lose his family. Another man marries his wife, moves into his house, and then he pays child support so that they can do that. That's what happens. It's right here in Proverbs 5. Another man will take your vitality. Strangers will take what you've worked for. That's the pattern, men. That's what this leads to. Somebody else marries your wife. Somebody else moves into your house and is the father to your kids, and you pay for it. This isn't a drill. It happens all the time. And it's not just physical adultery. Pornography will do the same thing. Here's what pornography does to you when you see it. It transforms the people that you're looking at from those who are made in the image of God with souls and they become objects that exist just for your sexual pleasure and gratification. I think you know I'm not messing around this morning. What we've learned about pornography in the last 15 or 20 years is gut-wrenching, and will make your stomach churn. Did you know that scientists have found that the closest thing to link what pornography does to the brain is to heroin? That's not a Christian thing. That's a scientific exploration. You can get all kinds of books. They're from psychologists and psychiatrists. They're from addiction specialists. not just Christian books that are starting to see, even in the wider world, the mind bending damage of pornography but as bad as that is spiritually it's actually worse because you forget that people have souls and to all and all to, they are to you is a dis dissouled an unsouled body and actually happens as you begin to do the same thing then to your wife or to other women that you know. It starts out with women that you'll never meet on a screen, and it becomes, you begin to do the same thing with women that you know, that you're married to. And then your wife senses that. She can sense that. She's smart. She begins to feel dehumanized because now you're doing the same thing to her. That starts a cycle of distrust That leads to withdrawal and isolation and then one of two things happen. Either your wife believes what God says, believes the gospel and refuses to live that way anymore. She tells you she won't and all the consequences that are going to come along with that. Or you both live for a very long time that way and it's miserable and it's barely human. Again, there, there aren't two options. You can't have one foot in this stuff. You can't just dip your toe in the water. And I need to say one more thing about pornography because I was writing this, there's something that kept sticking out in my mind and it just never fit anywhere in the flow, but it needs to be said. Because it can sound like what I'm saying is almost blaming women for the existence of pornography. And that's not actually true at all. Did you know that approximately 50% of the pornography online was made, so that's half, was made and uploaded by sex traffickers. So half of the pornography isn't even coming from people who are willing to do it. They are actually modern-day sex slaves. Further, two-thirds of the children rescued from sex trafficking report that they were used to make pornography. Pornography. Finally, a shockingly high number of people rescued from sex trafficking are children under the age of 18. So if you put some of these numbers together, it's hard to put a percentage on it, but ministries and and rescuers and, and advocacy groups are quite certain that a very high percentage of online pornography is actually children. Even when websites say it's adults over the age of 18, they're lying a lot of the times. It's actually little girls. This is what modern-day sex slavery looks like. Billions and billions of dollars a year. Millions and millions of girls. Don't look at porn. But what, about, what happens when you do? Is there any hope for sexually immoral sinners? And the answer is there's, there's actually more hope than we, we could ever think possible. 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 9, says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. It can say that you and I, if we are in Christ, we're justified because that's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And so if you trust in him and you repent of your sin, while he was hung on the cross, what actually happened there was to pay for your sexual sin... It was so that it would be taken off of you and placed onto him. And his death on the cross was the punishment for all of our wrongdoing, including adultery, including lust, including viewing women as objects, In another place in Scripture, it says if we can identify with him in a death like that, in other words, if we can say, I want to participate in that death with you, we also are given the gift of participating and of having a resurrection like his. That's the hope for us as ragged sinners. Christ paid for our sexual sin, and when he was raised to new life, so were we. If you're in Christ. The Bible says that if anybody is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has gone away and the new has come. And that means if you've sinned sexually, God can restore you not just to the way that you were previously, but to even better than that. If you've sinned against him sexually, God doesn't now see shame. And whatever way you might wrongly punish yourself for that, he sees a beautiful new creation. He can restore your mind, He can restore the intimacy of marriage. He can restore your virginity. He can restore it all because he doesn't just make you a little bit better. He makes you new. He can give you a new birth. So that's the first thing he gives you is new life. And the second thing he actually gives us is the sexual fulfillment we need. If you're married, he's given you the sexual fulfillment you need in your spouse And if you're single, he's given you himself. So look at verse 15. It says, drink from your own cistern. There's a few more verses with a a water metaphor. And the point is this. The Bible's answer for sexual desire among married people isn't rooted actually in willpower. You might think it's to say, well, be more self-controlled. Self-control is the fruit of the Spirit, but within the realm of sexual desire, within the covenant and marriage, God's provision is actually for you to be sexually enraptured by your spouse. It's a great and amazing gift. His answer for your sexual desire isn't to say don't have that desire. It's to give you that desire and to give you fulfillment for that desire. And, and I think I, I can actually say this with some less speci- specificity of these verses because I frankly think I can even say it less erotically than they do, but it's good and healthy for you in your marriage to enjoy the sexuality of your husband or your wife. And that's both the best offense and the best defense against sexual temptation. And for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are single, The command for you is slightly different, but no less from God and no less a provision from him. And the command and the provision is that God is enough. You can start to feel like you're missing out on something. uh, But outside of the bonds and the covenant of marriage, I I can promise you, you're not. I've talked with many, many people who've slept with, with several people that they're not married to. Kind of slept around. And you know what I've never heard anybody who slept around say? It was fulfilling. I've never heard a single person say that. It's always the opposite. I'm not going to pretend that it's not a special burden. But to the single people, the biblical cry is this. Christ is better than sleeping around. If you have that desire for sexual intimacy and you are single, pray and ask God for a spouse. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's good and healthy. Pray and ask God for a spouse. Pray that God would help you to look at every other person. And because you should marry a Christian if you are one, pray that every If you're a man, every woman would be to you as a sister in Christ until he releases you to look at one in a different way. If you're a woman, pray that every man would be to you a brother in Christ. And pray that God would keep you pure and give you eyes only for him and then when it's time for your spouse. And if he provides one, enjoy him or her. And if he chooses not to, and you feel particularly burdened by that, I will pray with you that you see him as more than enough because he is and he will be to you. And it may be, I won't even pretend to, to sugarcoat it another way. It might be a, for you a particular burden if, if you're called to a long time of singleness. But Christ is more than enough. Now we come to the last section. I've called this, this section the intention. So what are we going to do when faced with temptation. The certainty of sexual temptation has been explained. The way to, to fight against it has been taught. And now the question is, will you pursue purity and holiness? or you, Will you ignore all the warnings and, and follow the adulterous woman, the sexually promiscuous man, the internet website that, that turns women into objects? Will you follow something like that down to death or we follow God to life. We're all sexual sinners. Jesus said that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Same thing would, would apply to women. So this includes all of us. The only thing that can cleanse us from sin, and this is a sin that runs so rampant, tunnels down so deep, is to go to Jesus who died in the place of sexual sinners like us so that we could live with him forever. Verse 21 is really incredible. Look at verse 21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Think about what this is saying. It's the sternest warning possible, and it's the ultimate comfort imaginable at the same time. It says that what you think you are doing in secret, God knows. He sees it. In fact, he's watching you do it. But he still went to the cross to pay for that sin anyways. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is magnificent mercy. That Christ watching you sin would still say, I want to go to the cross to pay for this very sin. That's the grace that God extends to you. While you were still a sexual sinner, Christ died for you. This ends by saying, because of your lack of discipline, you're led astray. You and I might be but Christ wasn't. He was perfectly disciplined. He always obeyed the Father. When he was tempted, he fought the temptation. When he saw a sexualized woman, he looked not at her with lust, but with compassion. And he told her to leave the life that she had known and to pursue purity. And when he could have gone another way, he was obedient to death in the place of sinners. If you're in sexual sin and you feel like you don't have anywhere to go, that's actually another lie. You can go to Jesus. And he's inviting you to come. He welcomes you. He's the only one who can break the cycle of secrecy and shame. If you don't know how to go to him, ask a Christian friend to go with you. And once you've gone to him, ask a Christian friend to keep walking toward him together. There's two terrible things that can happen. Number one, you can keep going in this sin and someday be found out in it, and every day that you continue in it makes it worse than the day before. But that's not even the worst thing. The worst thing is that you can continue in the sin and never be found out in it. And so your whole life, you will live with a secret burden, a secret guilt, a secret shame that you never confess to Christ binds you up and owns you and you live every day wondering if today is the day that you'll be found out. It won't be easy, but it will be good to go to Christ, to go to a Christian friend, to get the help that God offers you and you will, and it's the only way you will, experience the freedom that he bought for you on the cross. Jesus is the friend of sexual sinners. Go to him. He welcomes you and says, Come. Let's pray together. God, you are more than enough for us. With what you have provided, make it sufficient. As you intend it to be, that by grace we would see in you, in what you've given, all we need. Sexual temptation is common to every single person in this room. But so is the offer of mercy and grace for Jesus, who is the Savior of us sexual sinners. Where conviction needs to be laid, lay it. Where grace needs to be spread, spread it. When we we know the hope of the gospel in this, some of our darkest and deepest secrets. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois.